Continuing in our summer series, looking forward to today, um, I've really enjoyed these last few weeks, and just so, man, I was so stirred last Sunday um, by what Rick taught, and I said it after I came up at the end, but I, he, he was reading that, that extended excerpt from the book, and I tell you, man, like, I had this picture in my mind that was so clear, but it was like a split second, I was standing in front of a church, this church, another church, and I was, was like, was, I was like in Nashville, or I was, just kidding. We were together in a different space, and it was probably three or four times the size of this room and the individuals, and I just felt like as he was reading what he was reading, the Lord was giving me this glimpse of, of, of like who we were. And um, I was really moved by it. And it was that identity of, of the, the immovable church, a church that is, um, understands and perceives with wisdom and discernment and stands prophetically, if you will, with a voice in this city. And I just felt like the Lord was solidifying in my mind, like, this is who you are. And I say that now just as an encouragement and, and to open my heart with you all and, and bring you into what excites me and what I have faith for, but also as a bit of a preparation because it's not an easy path to walk, to be the church, quite frankly, though, as God has called his church to be. It's not like I'm saying we're going to be something greater and better. No, I'm just saying to be the true and pure church. It's not an easy, easy path to walk, but I just felt like God was saying, no, this is who you are, this is what I've called you to, and it was this really cool glimpse. So I'm, I'm stirred in my own heart, and I've been praying about it, and I'll, um, I'll share more as, as maybe God shows more, but for you all, just hold, in, hold out in faith the more that God would have, that ellipsis, if you will, you know, the to be continued. I, I don't know what God will do. But I'm enjoying thus far just the series, and so I'm looking forward today to, um, to kind of bringing our next topic, and we're, we've decided to teach through this summer uh, a series, is it, are we got it up and we're ready? Yeah, we do, thanks, man. Oh, well, I, that was my fault. Um, we're calling it Sheer Christianity, Sheer is in pure, Sheer is in undiluted, uh, a little bit of a play on C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, any readers in here, right? There we go. There was a, a good friend who once had a bumper sticker that said, reading is sexy. And um, I think that uh, motto still holds true to this day. Um, sheer Christianity, radical faith, radical faith, church, radical faith in a deluded world. And what we're finding is that the dilution of, the, of this age is finding its way into the church. And so we felt to take subjects, uh, subject matter and topics that are either deep principle to the church itself or significant for us in terms of our identity as a church and to just bolster them and prop us up in faith and expectation and to anchor us in what does the word of God say about this? What is the, what is the pure and, and unadulterated expression of this look like? And so last week Rick spoke on worldview. And today I want to speak on something different, but I want to remind you of something as I begin which Rick said last week, which I believe is profoundly helpful 
and strikes to the very heart of the matter of what I want to bring this morning, but also broadly of what we need to accomplish and what we want to accomplish through this summer series. And he said it last week that a kingdom worldview is this. It is to love what God loves the way that God loves. I thought, what a great statement. And I don't, we'll give credit to you if you made it up. That was excellent. Because what it did is it summarized so well, it distilled really the heart of what we're getting at here. How does God see fill in the blank? And how does he love it? And therefore, how are we to see and embrace and pursue and to love what he loves? Whether we're talking about the church or whether we're talking about the mission of the church or as we've talked about the other subjects that we'll cover throughout the summer, to see as God sees and to love as God loves that thing. I thought that was so, so helpful. Because I think what is happening at times or what we've seen is that we unintentionally view and value certain things within the church from a naturalistic perspective, the way that the world would view it. And I don't think we intend to do it, but it's just that we live in this world in the ways of the world, and the process, and the values of the world, which Rick spoke to so wonderfully last week, the cultural liturgies, the habit-forming practices of this world, which are ever-present before us as a people, they form and they inform us. And so what happens is, is we find ourselves valuing or, or at least approaching something through a world lens and a world perspective. And so I don't think it matters what's being discussed to have this as our aim, to love what God loves the way that God loves, to have it as our end goal in our pursuits of understanding. I believe that it makes obtaining and maintaining the outcome much more certain. When we pursue what God pursues and we see it the way he does, it makes certain what we are pursuing that it will come to pass. I believe it does, or at least it definitely enhances our chances. And so last week, as, as Rick was speaking about the need to perceive and understand the present-day circumstances through a kingdom worldview, what was welling up within me was both an affection for what was true. As he was reading and speaking and stirring our faith, I found myself just a resounding yes for what is true. But at the same time, I had this kind of disdain and dissatisfaction for the false, for the counterfeit. And I began to think of the different things in this world, especially when we're talking about worldviews and we're talking about culture, it's easy to think of the different prominent values that are being espoused. And I found myself going, no, I want what is true. I know what's true. And I want to reject vehemently what is false and what the spirit of the age puts forward as being true, but is really just a counterfeit. So putting that before us today, what I want to do is introduce this subject, which I'm calling the power of placement. And I'm going to explain this more. I could have easily just spoken about Christian community, which is essentially what I want to speak to in a broad sense. But as I begin to think and as I was praying about today, 
I realize there's an aspect of it that is under attack within the church that I believe the church has become deluded in. And so I want to take just one aspect of Christian community, one aspect of the church itself, and I want to speak on that today. And it's a foundational piece. So would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians? And while you're turning, let me just use this as another shameless plug for the Bible as a written word. When we talk about cultural liturgies, one of the things that we find, which I believe can be a mighty tool for the kingdom of God, but at the same time, uncontrolled and without discipline can become a very active measure or method for cultural liturgies in our life, and that's our mobile phones. And so just to encourage you guys, man, have the written word of God in your hand. Pick it up on a daily basis. Read from it. Because what happens is sometimes we read on our phones, and the next thing you know, we're like, oh, let me check my email. I just got this notification about, you know, baseball and yada, yada, yada. And we, and we find ourselves sidetracked so easily. And so just as an encouragement, if you don't own a Bible, I'll buy you a Bible, gladly. But bring your Bibles on Sundays. Read your Bibles at homes. Use them because... There is uh, such a profound benefit to the um, centuries of preservation of the written word. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to read verses 12 through verse 20. And I'm going to read from the ESV. And if you forgot your Bible, that's no condemnation. We'll provide the text for you on the monitors here this morning. And this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, and underline this please in your Bibles, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. I think there's so much that can be said on this critical subject of Christian community. But as I said as a beginning, I want to uh, speak today on the power that, that being placed within the community of God holds for the believer. Because this is where I believe currently we are so susceptible to cultural dilution in the world today. Yes, ultimately the primary purpose of the church is found and it lies within the mission of the church to take the gospel to the world, to be a light, to be a a proclaimer of the gospel truth to a world who lives and lies in darkness and death. But if we only teach on the mission of the church and we neglect the teaching on the importance of it as a buttress to our lives as Christians and a support structure 
that promotes real and genuine flourishing for the Christian life, then ultimately what happens is the mission suffers as well. Does that make sense? Because the mission of the church relies upon the health of the structure of the church. A lack of integrity in one area affects the whole. And I believe that we are seeing in visible segments of Western Christianity a church that is immature, a church that is anemic, and as a result of these things, a church that is ineffective. Segments, not all. We know very many faithful churches. But by and large, when we think of Western Christianity, this is a pretty sizable segment of what we see and what we think of. This church has become weary of fighting the cultural liturgies. It's weary. It lacks the internal fortitude to sustain the constant onslaught each and every single day. Coupled with that, it's a church that's increasingly biblically illiterate and therefore compromised. And you put that together and what you have is a church that's more interested in maintaining its cultural relevancy than its biblical integrity. And that's what we are finding today within the church. Why is that? What has happened that the church we find is slowly, and I won't repeat it, but we're going like, what, we're abandoning this historical doctrine? When did this become up for debate? Little bit by little bit by little bit, the church has given away portions that it's held so long to. And then as a result of this, the church fails in its mission, and ironically, the one thing that it wanted so badly, it becomes bland, and it lacks any luster that would be appealing to the world whatsoever. It's watered down. It's no different than anything else. And so those who do come in are often brought into a place of casual commitment, a buffet church style of participation, and a self-centered, this is what works best for me approach to Christianity. And this is what people are being saved into. But this is not what we're called to, right? And so to put a, to put a twist on an old saying... What you are saved into, literally in this sense, is more important than what you are saved out of. What church are people being brought into? We have the obligation to hold to biblical conviction, to fight for that peace that God has given to us, and to stand and say, no more compromise, no more dilution. Amen? So what I'd like to do actually today, despite what it might seem like, is stir a sense of joy in our hearts. I really do. I want to stir just a genuine love and affection for what is the body of Christ Jesus. And to understand and to perceive that what God has done is so much more than just casually brought you into a building to worship him on a Sunday. But there is power, there is significance in where he has placed you. And to see the church as God sees the church and to love the church as God loves the church, right? 
So to help strengthen this point, Paul here uses an analogy for the church to speak of the church, which couldn't be any clearer to his readers nor to us, and it's a timeless analogy which will hold up all throughout eternity, and that is that the church is a body. Fourteen times in these eight verses that I read, Paul uses the word body for the church. And that word in the Greek is the word soma. But it doesn't just mean a physical body. Soma means this in the Greek. It's a number of individuals closely united. Listen to these words, church. Individuals who are closely united into one society or family. A social, ethical, and mystical body. Think about that for a moment. That is not descriptive of a casual, take-it-or-leave-it type of church. That is descriptive of a group of people who are knit, deeply intertwined with one another, unity of heart and mind, integrated life, right? The body is a social family. It's an ordered Physical, tangible community. Physical, tangible community is the church. It's an ethical family. It's one who is engaged in matters of morality, of right and wrong. That stuff matters. Right and wrong matters. Right? It matters. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what Paul's communicating by usage of this word. It's a spiritual family. The mystical body is a spiritual family. And that the, the origins of it, as I spoke in the very beginning, that God breathed into it were divine and sovereign and otherworldly as the Spirit of God empowered his church and rested upon those early believers. It's mystical. And we say this often, this is no ordinary gathering of people. This isn't the Rotary Club or your whatever, fill in the social club. There is something profoundly unique and powerful about the church, about this church. Three distinct and yet powerful facets of the church that as a whole most definitely define and represent something greater than the sum of their parts. Each of those together, physical, tangible, moral, and divine. That is what the church is. That is what the Soma is. But as I said, it's unlike other clubs. It's unlike social gatherings or organizations or other groups that we would be affiliated with because there's something that is deeply unique to this soma that Paul speaks of here in 1 Corinthians. And this is really the crux of what I want to say today. That unlike other organizations, listen, sorry, you put, you're in the splash zone. <laughs> unlike other organizations where we choose our affiliation, we do not choose the church. You might think you have chosen the church, but God has placed you. It is God who has chosen. It is God who has determined, and it is God who has set. Think about the, the, the ramifications of that, if you will. 
how that takes what we sometimes see within the church and turns it on its head. We hold individualism as a high value in the church at times. But what God is saying, it's not about you. You're integral to the church, but it's about the whole. It's about the body, what, which you are one of many members within. And we see in verse 13, it's God who chooses and it's God who has placed. Look at, for he says this in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And then he makes this statement, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You didn't choose the cup, if you will, to drink from. You were made to drink of one spirit. That is the one body of Christ Jesus. So where does this come from? What, what, is, what does that actually mean? This is the part of the doctrine of adoption that I believe that we sometimes can forget and or neglect. See, when your heart was opened to believe in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God through faith, when you were made new and regenerated in your heart, you were brought into the family of God. And as is with a natural family, which is why the family structure in the natural is so vitally important to the Lord Jesus. As it is within a natural family, you have been placed and you have been set. And it was apart from your doing. Your parents brought you into this world. They determined who would be in their family. Your heavenly parent brought you into this world and has placed you. And as a part of this, it then makes this, this truth of being placed irrefutable and irreversible. We cannot be removed from the body of Christ if you have been placed by Christ within it. Is that true? That's reasonable, right? As a daughter and a son adopted, you were placed into a family. You were fixed into the soma of God. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. It's easy when we teach topically to just take a text and kind of stick within it. But let's keep our fingers well lubricated and dexterous. Ephesians chapter 2, um, I don't think I'll have it on the screen, so I apologize. I'll just read it to you if you are without. I just, this, to this point that we have been placed, and as part of our adoption, we have been set. So Ephesians 2, Paul says this, beginning in verse 13. He says, but now, listen to these words, please, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, so that's before having come to faith, Outside of Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. And there's so much that can be said about the blood of Christ being certain and fixed and, and for all time irreversible. Amen? You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is Paul speaking of the, the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the context 
for this, of what God has done. Peace for those who are near and peace to you who are far off, verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are what? Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, this is the church now, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is that Paul gives to us of this very thing that I'm speaking. It was the blood of Christ that gave you access, that brought you in, that counted you not guilty before a just God, and as a loving and merciful God, did not just drop you isolated in a wilderness or a desert, but he has put you into a family. And he has joined you with other members of his body, of which it says we together are being built up. And I love how Paul uses the language here. He could just say that you have been built into the household of God. No, no. It's an ongoing, present sense of the being built together until what? Until one day when the church finds its final culmination in the return of Jesus Christ, and behold, the dwelling place of God is once again with man. That is what we look towards. That is what we are being built up into by the Spirit of God. Church, this is so much more. And listen, I'm saying this because this is not a church of wanderers. This is a church of committed brothers and sisters in the Lord. But what I'm saying is, is that this type of, of, of faith, of Christian living, necessitates a deep determination in our hearts to continue to be built up together, to at all costs maintain unity with the body of Christ Jesus. And so this simple truth of placement that allows us to refute and to resist the present day liturgy that says church is, listen, an optional add-on. A present day liturgy that says church is an optional add-on to your personal and solitary faith journey. That is a liturgy that we hear today. Church is an addendum Spirituality, faith, is, is, is supplemented to our natural life. That's not what we see in the Word of God. The Word of God teaches a people who are immersed in a life that is kingdom life. And everything is filtered, like Rick said last week, everything is filtered through a kingdom lens. Family, values, time, work, circumstances within culture, we view everything and we filter it all through a lens of the kingdom of God. How do we know what the kingdom of God lens is? We understand the word of God. We read the words of Jesus Christ who taught us what the kingdom is. I gotta hurry. Our placement into his body is a work of the spirit of God 
which flows from God's sovereign providence and his loving kindness. It is the Spirit of God who has placed us through our adoption into the family of Christ. And then to take it a step further, you might be thinking, well, yes, I do understand that I'm a part of the larger body of Christ, but what does that mean and what does that look like here and now? What does that mean for us as a local church? How is that significant? Because I think it's easy at times to go, I am a part of the body of Christ. And in fact, that pendulum can swing pretty far because then what we do is we find that we devalue the local church because we say, I'm part of the church universal. I don't need the local expression because I'm always connected with my brethren, right? I've, I'm, I mean, we all know people. I've talked to many, many people. I just had a conversation with some recently who has abandoned the church because he hated the, politici- the politicizing of its values the last couple of years or what he viewed to be the politicizing of his values. And so he says, I don't, I don't need that stuff. I still, I've got my faith as long as I'm loving Jesus and I'm loving people, how often do we hear that? Loving Jesus, loving people, hating the church. That's, we see that a lot. So you might be thinking, yeah, okay, I know that I'm part, but what does that have to do and pertain to the local? Look at verse 18 back at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says this, and it's like he takes it a step further. So he, he shows us, sorry, in, not verse 13 and verse um, 18. Verse 13, he says that we were all made to drink of one spirit. We were all brought in to the church universal. We've all been placed into the body of Christ. But now look at verse 18. He says, but as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And here we have this more intimate picture of God placing and fixing and fitting each individual rightly into its place. Much more intent than just connection, you're plugged in, now you're off and running. No, no, it's God who has arranged you and you and you and each and every one of us into the place where he has wanted us to be. He places us, he arranges us to where he chooses. Listen, he knits us and he fits us in so perfectly Without, with, 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 with purpose and with intent to where we are best suited, to where we will flourish and where we will contribute most to the mission of the church. A friend of ours wrote a book, and I want to just read a quick excerpt from it if I can. Great. He says this, One of the ways Western individualism informs how we think about church is that we conceive what we conceive of fit in terms of how a church fits us. Does, it, does its worship style, its architecture, preaching, values, and demographic makeup fit well with our personality and our preferences? Again, that's a cultural liturgy, right? That's a buffet-style Christianity. Take what I want, find what best suits me. This approach, he says, puts a burden on the church to adapt or perform to our liking if it wants to keep us around. But, and he asks an excellent question, what if we have it backwards? What if the biblical approach, no, that's not right, is, this is my typing, what if the biblical approach is actually that we should fit ourselves into the life and mission of the local church, 
adapting ourselves to the family and filling the gaps where needed, even if it means that we are the ones who have to change. Hello? That feel good? Who's happy? No, seriously, come on. This is true. He's asking a question that he knows the answer to. We have it backwards, church. We shouldn't look for a church that will change to fit us. We should look for one where we will all be changed to better represent Christ. I feel like that's just a drop the mic moment and finish the morning right there. That's the point. We have it backwards. This is the essence of what Paul is saying in verses 14 through 19. He, listen, he isn't saying figure out which member you are. Figure out which member you are and, and then act accordingly. He's saying, no, no, no. Recognize that you are in fact a member and then live as that member. Do you hear the difference? It's not just like figure out your function. It's like, no, what Paul is saying in all those verses where he's talking about body and members and members and body and body and members and members and body, it's this one thing. You are members. Act as members. Not figure out which member you are. We're all members of the body of Christ, which God has arranged and fit and knit us into, into this local church here today. So I think now we're getting in, into the needy-greedy. In the words of Nacho Libre, now we get into the needy-greedy. Who is this encarnacion? This is, this is, the, this is the, the, the detail now of the heart of what Paul is getting at. See, it's easy to know and it's easy for us to believe that through salvation we've been placed into God's body, the church, the universal. But it's another thing to then recognize that with this placement, he also arranges us to where he wants us to be and not necessarily where we are the most desirous of being. Why? To maximize because he knows, maximizes our effectiveness, maximizes our, our, our flourishing in the body of Christ. Our participation in the mission of the church is maximized when we are where he wants us to be, right? So when we resolve this, we see that perhaps we have had it backwards, as Brett says. We can then relinquish ourselves joyfully to the process of God by forming ourselves into the crevices of the church where we are needed the most, acting as the part that we are. And here I think we find Peter's living stone analogy so helpful, which we read when we studied just recently 1 Peter. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, that you yourselves like living stones, almost echoing a bit of what we just read Paul was saying to the church in Ephesus, that you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, that we do this together. This is happening together, not in isolation, that we each submit. I have to submit, you have to submit, and you have to submit and embrace the joy that it is being placed and arranged by the chief builder and architect that is Christ Jesus. Now, I'm sure that you've heard this pointed out before, maybe in a, a sermon or just used in description of further description of Peter's words in chapter 2 there with, of the living stones. But the brilliance of his analogy was that each stone isn't smooth nor is it symmetrical. It's not uniform. That's not what Peter is giving us a picture of here. But rather that each one is placed and used 
just as they are, shapes, sizes, textures, colors, rough edges, smooth edges, weird forms. And you get this picture of like the old walls. And we went back to the UK with some friends in, in a couple years ago, and we saw these old walls from, were they like Roman era, right? Didn't we look at a Roman era wall? Man, there is nothing uniform about that wall. But what is true about that wall? It has stood for centuries upon centuries because it was built with integrity and with strength. Bless you. This is a sovereign and divine formula for flourishing like you have never seen it before. And the success of the mission of the church relies upon us perceiving it. So if you're here today, it's because this is where God has placed you. Find rest in it. Find joy in it. Please, for the sake of the church, give yourself to it. If you haven't had a chance to meet or hear, I'm not going to even look at her, Jackie's story, would you please invite her out to coffee, have her over for dinner, and hear her story? Jackie's story is such a blessing to this church, how God has fit her into this faith community, and what a picture she is of flourishing when God places someone. And it's not unlike the rest of us. She's just a more recent case. And it's a joy to watch God fit her in and to see how he is not only giving her placement, but she is finding fulfillment and she's flourishing and she's adding to this church and she's making us better. Right? She's really making us better. She's awesome. It's a great, great example of this principle that I'm wanting to drive at. So if you're here today and you're on the margins, I appeal to you, please. There's nothing within Scripture that shows marginal integration into a faith community. It is whole and full and relinquishing everything. And don't make me turn to Acts 2, where they gave everything away to each other, right? Where they sold everything they had and they laid the money at the feet of the apostles. And they held all things in common. And they devoted themselves to the prayers, to the breaking of bread, and to the teaching of the apostles. There's nothing marginal about that. And what, to the, thank you to the fellowship. And what do we see? For the, well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. The marginal believers, what happened? God struck them down. That's messed up. I'm not saying that's going to happen. But, but what is the picture we have in the New Testament church? That was, it was. It was an all or nothing. It was all or nothing. That's what the church is. It's all or nothing. And I'm asking for all. If you're here, God bless you. I'm so thankful for you. Give us all that you are, please. Oh, I'm up on it. We, we're going to take communion. And I, I wanted to take communion. Just I'll, I'll lay it out in a minute. Brett says this just a, a couple uh, paragraphs later from what I read, to commit to a local church as a for better or worse family in sickness and in health till death do us part, being loyal to it regardless of whether cooler churches or celebrity pastors moving down the street is truly countercultural. I thought that was a great statement. 
You want to live countercultural? Commit yourself, for better or for worse, to a local church and stick with it. I was thinking of this the other day. This might frighten some of you. We are going to grow old together. Some of you might very well see me standing here 30 years from now. And I sure hope that we do. And I'm not saying God can't remove you from a church. I'm not saying that. But we don't remove ourselves from the body of Christ. And too much we see members moving and removing themselves. When God is saying, I fit you here. Give yourself all to it. I hope you see me to be, however, 60 years old. That's not that far off. It's like, it's like 18 years from now. So I just want to end with one thing, addressing one of the common fights that we take on when we promote this worthy Christian pursuit of placing and, and recognition of our placement. And that's the reality that the church is imperfect and it's flawed. And that's one of the biggest reasons that people jump ship, that people move on, or that people find themselves disconnected. So many have left because of hurts, wrongdoings, harsh words, poor leadership, offenses. God knows offenses happen, right? Don't make me say it. The list is long and it's continuous of the reasons why people are hurt and disillusioned within the church. And what's worse, there's in some instances, they've even walked away completely unable or unwilling perhaps to see the church and the, and the love, to love the church as God loves her despite her flaws and her shortcomings. And the result of this then is a people who are guarded. They're distant, they're marginally connected, half-hearted in their commitments, always looking for that perfect church that they and everybody knows doesn't exist. There is no perfect church out there. If it was, I'm going to go to it. I won't be here anymore. I'll send you an email this week if I find it. It doesn't exist. The perfect church doesn't exist. Why? We're imperfect beings. But let me give you some hope. So how do we guard ourselves from this? How do we guard ourselves? How do we find healing for ourselves if this was our experience? And how do we help others connect through a similar experience? How do we find, help others find healing that have? The answer is twofold. It's humility and it's faith. And you're going to go, oh, I was looking for something more practical. Humility and faith. Listen, listen, humility. Humility recognizes this, that we ourselves are imperfect beings. We are imperfect beings. If you're looking for a perfect church or if you were hurt by the church, remember that you were once an enemy of God that you first sinned against God, right? We hold a right view of ourselves in light of others, that we were prone to sin, that we were prone to offend, and before we were sinned against, we first sinned. And the grace which he showed us and the example that he modeled for us in Christ Jesus gives us a model for how we are to relate towards each other as Christ's Soma. And then faith, because we first recognize that this is God's church. He's forming it. He's placing. He's knitting. He's building us together by his spirit into something. We don't always know what or why, but it's how that allows us to relinquish ourselves willingly and joyfully and without reservation to those whom God has placed us with. Faith. 
We trust God. We have faith in God to know that he cares about this church, Capital City Church, more than we care about Capital City Church. Which means that when we offend, that me, or when we walk in with hurt, or when we, whatever it is, that when something, when a division happens, that God will provide the way, that God has given us the grace to stay connected, to continue, and to maintain unity with each other. Right? Let me just, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm, up, I'm over it. Let me just share this with you, because this was, is this was like the whole point, and then I'm done. Listen to this. Charles Haddon, my man. He says this, if I have ever joined a church, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perf- a perfect church after I had become a member. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. The church is faulty, but that's no excuse for your not joining it, for if, if, if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are sinners still and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. I love that. That is it. Humility. We mess the church up because we bring ourselves into it. We're, st- we're still a sinful people who are prone to sin, and we work that out together by the grace of God. So church, I just say, we need to see as God sees, and we need to love the church as God loves the church. Let it begin with us here, amen? You are fit here. You are knit here. Embrace it and give yourself to it. And, and listen, if, if you are newer to the church and you are still trying to find whether this is, that's okay. This isn't to say, well, oh, you're here, now you gotta stay, it's like Hotel California. You can check out any time of night, but you'll never leave. That's not, no, I'm just saying, embrace what I've said here this morning, the importance and the reality that God has placed you, and as quickly as you can, as Spurgeon says, find that place where you have been fit. And I pray that it is with us. This is a great church. This is a great church. Would you stand? I want to receive communion now. Just in, in the spirit of what I have said this morning, just speaking to both of us, an invitation to those who might, are perhaps on the fringe. Where and why are you guarded? What are you guarded about? What are you uncertain of? And as we come to the Lord's table today, listen, there's really, in light of what I just said, there's profound significance in the Lord's table. This is the participation in the body of Christ Jesus. As the body, to participate in his body as a recognition of what he has done for us and as a statement of how he has placed us. And so if you're, if you, if you're finding yourselves on the fringe of this faith community, but yet you in your heart have said, this is my church, I would ask you, why are you guarded? And ask the Lord this morning, if you're uncertain, to, to show you why you are guarded. And if so, relinquish that unto him. 
Give that to him open-handedly. Let him carry that burden and let him bring and, and allow you to find healing by his grace and his mercy this morning. Amen? And then to, rest, and to the rest of us, then I would ask you this. If we are a part and we are committed, how can we ourselves pursue our integration even greater into this Soma that is Capital City Church? Where do we hold back in our hearts? Where, do we, where can we still give more of who we are and who God is in, in, God is in us for the betterment of this church and the sake of the mission of God?